What is going on, my beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Search for Consciousness. The conversation I had with my brother here was so good with Marcus Allen that we decided to do a round two. We did not want to rush the conversation, nor did I want this resource to go unspoken. We needed Mark to be heard all over. He covers a lot of interesting points, and I think it needs to be heard. So, Mark, the truth speaker, Marcus, let me thank you again for joining part two of Search for Consciousness. Delighted to be here, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me. I've privileged somebody who is has the ability to get good information by asking good questions. That's the key to it. That's what you do. Yes, because you're a teacher. You know about these things. Yes. So thank you. 100%. And I'm, I'm honored to converse with you. I know that you have a lot of information to share. So I want to just jump right in. So my brothers and sisters, just to set the tone and give you an idea of what you're going to hear, if you have not already done so, please go back and listen to round one, where we covered NASA theories, conspiracies. I call them truth stories, but it depends on what lens you come in on. That being said, we decided to come back and attack some of the Egyptian questions, which are burning. So I'm just ready to ask them. So let me just thank our guest one more time. And without further ado, Marcus Allen, the truth seeker. All right. Thank my, you, Steve. Yes, sir. So my first okay. question, we got into a little bit of this, but I don't think we got too heavy. So what I wanted to start off with was something that I heard you say back in... I want to say maybe two years ago it was a video that I watched and you mentioned rock softening liquid. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, the rock softening liquid. I was trying to answer a question which I've had for many, many years. How did the ancients, we'll call them that, uh, whether they're in South America, in Peru and Bolivia, whether they're in Egypt and at the Giza pyramids, whether they're anywhere around the world, Easter Island, the same thing happens. There are some, there are some people who were able to do things with rocks that today we, with all our technology, can't achieve, not to the same extent. Now, if we assume that those ancients were primitive hunter-gatherers, which is the accepted view of modern man looking back into history, if we accept that they were hunter-gatherers, i.e. not very sophisticated people, not knowing a great deal, how did they achieve the remarkable results we see around the world, such as the Pyramids of Giza, such as Tiwanaku in Bolivia, and Pumapunco in Bolivia, and Cusco in Peru, Sacsayhuaman in Peru. These are all physical, physically identifiable, remarkable results. So the question I had was, how did they do it? How do you carve granite? Because that's what we're talking about here, granite. We're not talking about limestone. We're not talking about anything other than the hardest rocks that you can find. <clears throat> granite is a volcanic, it's a result of a volcanic uh, eruption. It's part of the Earth's, uh, the, Earth's, the Earth's core, and when vol vol volcanoes go off, they produce 
amongst other things, not just granite, they produce uh, all sorts of different types of minerals, but granite is the main one. Now, granite is used in the modern world because it is so strong. It is so indestructible, almost. I mean, you really do have to take a, a sledgehammer to it to destroy it. With sandstone, which is basically compressed sand at the end of the day, or limestone, which is basically the shells of ancient animals that died, like snails and lobsters and all the other animals that uh, we find in the sea. When they die, their skeletons produce limestone. And limestone is not a particularly strong material. You can make statues out of it, and you can carve it, and you can make considerable thing a considerable number of things from it but granite is so so hard that it is almost impossible to cut now when you look at the history of egypt you look at the history of south america and many other places around the world it, it applies in france in scotland in germany the same thing applies granite is a fairly universal material that you can find around the world but how was it carved to create the results that we see today in the 21st century? We see the results. We can go and see them in museums. We can go and see them on site in Peru, Bolivia, Egypt, Easter Island, if you happen to be able to get there. It's a long way. It's the most isolated, un most isolated inhabited island in the world. It's 2,000 miles from Chile. So how did they achieve these results? <clears throat> because the results are there, you can see them. So I started looking into how do you carve granite? You can't use copper chisels on granite. Copper will not cut granite. So let's get that out of the way to start with, because that is the explanation offered by people who we are assume understand these things. No, copper is a soft metal. Copper does not cut granite. The only thing that will cut granite is something harder than granite. Normally, diamond is the thing that is harder than granite. It's harder than most things. But there, is, there weren't any diamonds in Egypt, let alone in South America. There were no diamonds, and nobody actually knew how to use them. So I thought, well, we can see the results around us. So how was it done? So what I looked at, a very simple expedient. You ask Dr. Google some of these things. And you get some quite interesting replies. How do you cut granite? And one of the replies was something like the rock softening liquid. Now, a rock softening liquid, which is quite well known, there are liquids that will soften rock. But does it soften granite? That is the key. And what that led me to find was an interesting um, account by a gentleman of the name of Colonel Percy Fawcett, who was a, a British army officer by his title. He was also an explorer in South America. And he spent a lot of time in South America and he's, he vanished. He was on an expedition to find El Dorado, the city of gold, which he'd heard was in the Amazon basin, the Amazon rainforests. But basically he went on an expedition, never came back. But he'd done a lot of accounts prior to that, 
And one of these accounts, which I read, was to do with an expedition he was involved with in Peru, where he went with some assistants, some helpers, some laborers, some people who were with him. And one day they just rested, and the one of the people who was with him came across this wooden bowl known as a gourd, a wooden bowl, and it had in it some strange-looking liquid. And the, the local who was with Colonel Fawcett sniffed it, you know, sniffed it, said, oh, no, no, no. Basically, he was saying, no, don't go near the place. Don't go near it. It's dangerous. And the other people on the expedition started to tease him and said, you know, what's all this about? And he basically ran away. But the point is that the gourd, which was full of this liquid, was spilt on the rock on which it was sat. When they came back about 10 minutes later, the rock was soft, like putty, hmm. as if something had softened the rock. I thought, that's an interesting story. I've never heard of something that could soften rock. And then I read other reports of um, a Peruvian bird called the Andean flicker, F-L-I-K-A, Andean flicker. It's, it's basically the size of a pigeon, not a particularly large bird, but that had been observed hunting around in shrubs finding a particular leaf taking it in its beak and rubbing it on a rock face and when that wore out it went and got another one and rubbed it and basically it was trying to build a nest in a rock face i thought hang on a minute that's a bit weird animal birds don't normally do that they normally use twigs to make a nest but this particular bird the andean flicker you can check it out builds its nest in rocks by softening the rock and picking it out like a woodpecker would, would peck away at a tree to make a nest this the andean flicker pick, pecks away after it softened it in the rock face to make the nest in which it would lay its eggs i thought oh have i heard of that i thought and then i read about an, a, a spanish priest who was uh, working in in Peru, I believe it was, about a hundred years ago, who'd heard of this rock softening liquid. And by the way, you can still buy the rock softening liquid today. If you go to Peru, go to Cusco, and you ask for, I forget the the official Spanish name for it, but basically it's, it, it, it looks like sort of treacle. It's black, it's dark, but it's a liquid. You can buy it today if you know who to ask and where to go for it. Anyway, this Spanish priest had heard of this, was determined to find out what it was made of. Now, there are many trees and shrubs, as we know, in South America, and there are many things that those trees and shrubs and plants and vines can be combined to make. And one of the things is ayahuasca, which is a hallucinogenic drug, which you have to take under very, very controlled conditions, because it will have serious effects you have to be able to be prepared for those effects. So we know that in South America, plants can be combined to make different things. Ayahuasca is made from three different um, different vines, different plants. Another interesting thing is that uh, we're probably all familiar with the idea of the poison tip arrow. 
which is what people go hunting with, and uh, they they have this. It's called curare, which is put onto the the tip of the arrow, and they use a a blowpipe to uh, fire it at, in this case, a monkey usually, and that's lunch. And it falls down. It's an interesting story on that. That if you take a monkey that has been paralyzed, because that's what it does, it paralyzes the muscles. It doesn't kill them because the, the, the arrow with the curare on it goes into the bloodstream of the monkey and it paralyzes it. Curare, for any medical person, will know that curare is used in general anesthetic today, the artificial version of it, because it relaxes the muscles. And that's what anesthetic is supposed to do. But if it relaxes the muscles so that when it hits the, the monkey in the tree, the monkey falls out of the tree, that's lunch, that's good, then they eat it. Hang on a minute. If you eat the, the flesh of a monkey that's been paralyzed and then subsequently killed as a result of the use of curare, why doesn't the person who eats it have the same effect? Ah, it's an interesting situation on that, because if you eat the flesh of a monkey that's been paralyzed by curare, you eat it and it enters your stomach. In your stomach, there are enzymes which will neutralize the effect of curare. So when people were looking into this, maybe 50 years ago, they said, how do you know that? How do you know that curare, if you eat it, a curare contaminated piece of meat, if you eat it, it won't have the same effect on you. Ah, they said, we asked the plants. It's that simple. The shaman in South America, a very revered people, true shaman, not the tourist versions, but the true shaman, they can communicate with plants. So they asked the plants. And that's how they knew that there was no problem. So you've got this story that the, in, in South America, I mean, it, it sounds almost unbelievable. It sounds like science fiction, but it's true. Just because we don't believe it, because in the West we, or the civilized world, as we call it, doesn't understand that sort of communication level, we, d we dismiss it. And that is to our detriment if we dismiss it. We must accept that there are things we don't, we not, we do not, fully understand because we haven't investigated it at the level that the people who understand it know there are stories from around the world about this in russia there are stories like this south america parts of europe there are stories like this so to get back to the rock softening milkweed it was observed that birds knew what to find in the way of of a, of a leaf that would have this effect on the place they want to build their nest. So <coughs> if we then look around, right around the world, we find that there are granite blocks that have been softened and manipulated to the point where they are interlocking. Now, people have looked into this for many years. How did the, in South America and in Egypt, because in Egypt, there are, there's a lot of granite used in Egypt. There are huge blocks in Egypt. I've been there, I've seen them. And there's one in the 
It's called the Unfinished Obelisk in the granite quarries of Aswan in southern Egypt. And that has some interesting clues about it because there are there is evidence that obelisks, which can weigh three, four hundred tons each, have been moved from this quarry in Aswan. It's the only quarry in Egypt that has the granite because it can be tested against what has been made of it. There are people who have identified the obelisks in Karnak, in Luxor, and some of the blocks in Giza, which is near Cairo, 500 miles from Aswan, as having, having come from the Aswan quarries. And if you go to the Aswan quarry, you will see what looks like the result of an obelisk having been removed from the bedrock. Now, the unfinished obelisk, probably the best known of them all, is still in the bedrock because it cracked halfway through the extraction process. So it wasn't suitable. But if you look at it, there's a trench all around this obelisk. It's about, about 120 yards long, 120 meters long. It's quite big. And around it, there is a trench about three foot wide, two to three foot wide, and about eight foot deep. And you can walk around this trench. And if you do walk around it, you'll see on the bottom of the trench what look like scoop marks as if it's an ice cream scoop has been used to scoop out the material from this trench so that you could get down to it and then you go underneath the obelisk and you look at some of the places where they have been already taken from the bedrock and you'll see the same scoop marks as if somebody has softened the rock to the point where it can be easily removed whether it's with a piece of metal or a piece of wood, it doesn't matter, but it's been removed. The same evidence applies in South America. You can see the same scoop marks. So was this evidence for a material that had been softened, removed, so that the block can be then removed? Now, I mentioned the Spanish priest in, in Peru who had investigated this rock softening liquid and he claimed to have identified the material from which it was made hence the story about the plants and the vines but the problem he had which he said quite openly he said i don't know how to stop the process so you can soften the rock but unless you can stop the process it will just carry on softening mm. and it won't be any good to anybody but we know by the evidence in front of us, and, and this is the, the key point, the evidence is there in front of us, that somebody must have identified the ability to stop the process of softening. I don't know what it is. I wish I did because it would make me very rich and famous and, and I would go around the world demonstrating rock softening liquid. Oh, well, stop it now. So it's a nice shape. No, I don't know what it is. So if, if anybody listening, and there are probably people who are as interested as me in this subject, can identify not only the material required to make the rock softening liquid, which can't be that difficult, but it's made basically of plants, and then also how to stop the process at the appropriate time. Because if you look at the results that we see around the world, let's take Egypt. We're talking of granite. We're not talking limestone, we're not talking sandstone, we're talking granite. Granite is a very, very hard 
and durable material. And it can be carved. Today we use diamond tip drills, diamond cutters. So yes, you can do it today, but there were no diamonds in Egypt. There are no diamonds in South America because diamond is a harder material than granite. And that's where a lot of the diamonds that are mined around the world go to. They go to commercial use for cutters. Hmm. So if granite is so strong, which it is, that it can only be cut by a material harder than itself, which it can, i.e. a diamond, maybe corundum or carborundum can do it. But then you look at some of the results achieved with granite and in Egypt and the Cairo Museum in Egypt, there are incredible artifacts which are hardly noticeable unless you know what to look for. And one of them is a statue made of granite of a pharaoh, it doesn't matter who the pharaoh is, who has on one side of him Anubis, mm-hmm. the dog-headed human figure, and Isis, who was the, the son of Osiris, holding their hands up mm-hmm. to the pharaoh as if they're imparting to him knowledge. But this is a bigger-than-life-size statue in the Cairo Museum, and go and see it, bigger than life-size statue made of granite, of one piece of granite. Hang on a minute. One piece of granite, a statue with three figures. They're not necessarily representational in that they're not like Michelangelo's statue of David in Florence, which is a beautiful statue. It's also bigger than life-size. David, who who killed Goliath, famous throwing the stone mm-hmm. brought him down uh, it's not that's made of limestone from the Carrara quarries in Italy limestone is a soft material granite is a very hard material and a friend of mine is a sculptor and I asked him I said how would you sculpt granite he said I wouldn't there's no point it's so hard the only thing that'll cut it are tungsten tipped chisels but it's so much like hard work. Why bother? Use sandstone, use limestone, don't use granite. Do you know any sculptors who use granite in preference to anything else? Very unlikely. Are there any granite statues that you know of around New York, around America? There are one or two possibly, but they're not usually particularly well finished. But this statue in the Cairo Museum is beautifully finished like it's been sanded down mm-hmm. and you can see it, it's represent I say it's representational what you what you're looking at you know what you're looking at you're looking at a jackal headed human for goodness sake what a ridiculous thing to do but you know it's a human you can recognize it as a human you can recognize the jackal head as well long pointed snout and Isis has, a, has the, 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 um, the hawk head. So you've got these things. You can recognize what they are. So they're very well done. The point is that you can't make a mistake. If you get the head wrong, you've got to take another piece of granite and start all over again. You can't just repair what you've got. So how are these things done? And this is the big question. And it seems to be glossed over. There are, there are many experts on sculpture, 
There are many people who can quote chapter and verse on how sculptures are produced. I don't doubt that for a minute. Out of granite? That I doubt. Because I don't see granite sculptures as being, the, the, I don't see granite as being the medium of choice for high quality sculptors. They were used limestone, they were used sandstone. But when you look at the, at the ancients and, and how long ago was all this done? Well, modern scholarship will tell you that, uh, well, pyramids in Egypt were built four and a half thousand years ago. Rubbish, of course they weren't. They were built at least 20,000 years ago, if not much older. But the simple expedient of looking at the Sphinx, which is a lion-headed, a lion-bodied creature with a human head, that's pretty weird in itself. And it faces due east. And at the time of its creation, it was facing the constellation of Leo. If your star sign is Leo, you'll know what we're talking about. Leo appears in the heavens. The Sphinx looks towards it. It's due east. On the solstice, it will be facing Leo as it passes through because all the astrological signs go round in a 26,000 year cycle. For 2,000 years, it will be facing itself. Leo, the Sphinx, will be facing Leo, the sign. But then it moves. 2,160 years, you get another astrological sign. And then 2,160 years later, you get another one. And 12 times, you get the complete revolution. But nobody knows when it was built. The estimation is that it was built 4,500 years ago. I don't believe that. It could have been built many, many years earlier than that because one of the great pieces of detective work on the Sphinx was done by John Anthony West, or the late John Anthony West, who was a, described as a maverick Egyptologist. He was fascinated by the whole area, but he wasn't qualified, so he was maverick. But the person who was qualified was Professor Robert Schock of Boston University, who's an accredited geologist. And he was invited by John Anthony West to come to Egypt to look at the Sphinx, specifically the erosion around the Sphinx enclosure, because the Sphinx sits below much of the surrounding area. And it's been, there's a big area in which it sits. And in that area, it's made of sandstone, bedrock, of vertical fissures. Vertical fissures could only be carved by water erosion not wind erosion, which is how it's normally explained. Some of it is wind erosion, yes, but the vertical fissures are water erosion. But Egypt didn't have water at that level over the last 5,000 years. It could be much earlier. And the amount of erosion indicates that we're talking torrential amounts of water. So when was the last time that would have happened? Is it 12,000 years ago? This is the estimate given now. So what we're talking about here are discoveries quite recently, which indicate a much older date for many of these artifacts that we have revered for many years. 
I, I said that the, the average age given for the Sphinx and the pyramids is about four and a half thousand years. Why is that? Why was that chosen as a time period? Let's go back a little bit. You're familiar with the King James Version of the, of the Bible? Yes, sir. I have one handy. Holy Bible. Just in yeah, case. The King James Version. King James refers to King James I of England. He authorized the translation of the Bible from its original Latin, Greek, and Aramaic into English, which is a spoken language in England at the time. Having authorized it, it was authorized for use in churches. Because don't forget, King James I was now the head of the Church of England, the Protestant Church, because Henry VIII had done his big, I want a divorce, and the Roman Church wouldn't give him one, so he said, right, I'm setting up my own church, called the Protestant Church. James I came in about 500 years later, uh, 50 years later, and he was a, a, a scholar, James I, and he said, right, we want the Bible translated into English so everybody can read it. So it was translated into English. It's a beautiful translation, the original King James authorized version. It's a beautiful translation. We're not getting to who did it. It doesn't really matter who did it. It was done. As a result of it, there were many people now who could read English. They couldn't necessarily read Greek or Latin or Aramaic, but they could read English. And one of the people was a guy called uh, Bishop Usher of Armagh in Northern Ireland. And he took, he did the simple expedient of taking, I think it's uh, Exodus, where the, the Bible recounts the various previous um, generations somebody begat somebody begat somebody mm. and going back to adam and eve king james um, bishop usher determined the date of the day of creation and he determined that it was october the 23rd 4004 bc i.e just over six thousand years ago but the simple expedience was saying well if an the average generation at that time was about 25 years. Some of them were much longer. There were people who lived for 900 years. Anyway, he added it all up, and that was the answer he got. And that was the date. In fact, my family Bible, which was published in 1859, has all these dates in it at the top of the page. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is 4004, 4004 BC, before Christ. But nothing could have happened before that, could it? Because the date of the day of creation, we've now determined is 4004 BC, so nobody <coughs> could have done anything before that date. So no historical investigation could have determined the existence of anything or anybody before the date of 4004 BC, which is why you never hear anything discussed until recently as occurring before that date. Hmm. That's why the pyramids are four and a half thousand years old. They couldn't be any older. Because they had to have time to build them. And Stonehenge, same thing. So hmm. you've got all these weird dates which are determined by the importance of biblical knowledge. Because at the time, don't forget, 150 odd years ago, 1859, not everybody could read English. Certainly 200 years ago. 
they couldn't necessarily all read English. So they went to church to hear what the priest would tell them, and they would believe what they were told. If the priest said, this is the date of the day of creation, they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 I accept that. Yeah, the priest says so. He must be right. He must know these things. Because there weren't things like anthropology or biology or any of these ologies that we've got now. That came later. That was the result of Charles Darwin publishing his book, The Origin of Species. And that was seized on by this increasingly vocal group of people who were trying to overthrow or overturn the influence of the church. And they had this great book, Origin of Species, which said everything happened very slowly. Uniformitarianism, very slowly. Things don't happen fast, so they happen over a long period of time. Rubbish. Yes, things do happen slowly, but you get interspersed with that slow uniformitarianism, punctuated by dramatic, world-changing events, like comet strike. How did how did the dinosaurs die? There's a big meteor in the Gulf of Mexico. You can see it. It's a big. You can see where it landed. It's huge. And as a result of that, the dinosaurs died out. But of course, that was all um, nonsense, according to the scientific experts. And now we're beginning to find, no, it's not. These things generally happen over a long period of time. They were interspersed with dramatic, world-changing events, one of which was an event which took place in North America about 12,500 years ago when North America was covered with two miles of ice, about halfway down North, what's now the United States. Huge sheets of ice. It got hit by a comet or a meteor, nobody can quite determine what, because of course the, the crater is no longer visible. But you've got two miles of ice, it hit that, it melted it. Suddenly sea levels rose about 30, 40 meters very fast. Well, of course it would. You've got all the ice melting. It was a very sudden and rapid event. But because science, in its wisdom, says it can only happen slowly, it couldn't possibly be a sudden impact of a meteor on the North American mainland. Same thing happened in Europe. Northern Europe was um, flooded and decimated as well. Sea levels rise. Anybody who lived near the coast would, of course, have to move inland because you can't. <laughs> this, this, and when I say it happened fast, it would probably happen over a few decades because it would take a while for the ice to melt. Look how long it takes an ice cube to melt when you put it in a drink. It doesn't happen immediately. And as soon as the ice is in the water, it's not going to. When the ice cube melts, it doesn't make the water rise up because the ice occupies the same space as the water that it consists of. And that's why when the ice melts, if it's on land, yes, the water will rise. But if it's in sea, which is why the Arctic, which is completely covered in ice, if that melts, it doesn't make any difference. If Antarctica melts, we've got another problem. So you, you've got all these things. So what, all I'm saying here is that there is a great deal of information which is only now becoming available 
you know, the, the idea of, of the North American ice sheet melting 12,500 years ago is being investigated very professionally by a group of people now who are working very closely together, looking at how this thing happened, possibly when it happened, what's the, what's the evidence for it? And there is increasing amounts of evidence. So what I'm saying is that a lot of people have been misled by some scientists who have a vested interest in holding on to the old stories. So when you start looking into the geology and the anthropology, you know, what happened to all the, what technically called megafauna, the large animals in North America? Some of them died, some of them were killed, but they didn't all freeze. And those that did freeze, they were flash frozen. There are mammoths, which are basically hairy elephants, bigger, bigger than elephants, hairy elephants, discovered in Siberia, still with buttercups in their mouths. They were having a meal. They were eating things and they got flash frozen. Hmm. It doesn't take, that's a very, very rapid process. And there are, there are people now who are trying to, to take DNA samples from those flash frozen mammoths mate and, and combine it with elephant DNA to try to recreate a hairy mammoth. Well, good luck to them. I don't know if it'll work. It'd be a very lonely animal if it, if, it, if it is created because it hasn't got any mates. So it won't be able to reproduce. Now, you've got all these things going on which are not necessarily discussed or talked about because if you're in mainstream sciences, anthropology, archaeology, biology, you will not be allowed to discuss these things. I say not be allowed advisedly. It's because of the peer pressure around you. If you start coming up with something like I'm just talking about here, in an accredited, tenured professor, if, if an accredited, tenured professor was saying some of these things, he'd be drummed out of his university. You wouldn't be allowed to continue because he would be going against the accepted view of the current thought. It's called the knowledge filter. If you've ever heard of a guy called Michael Cremo, who is a uh, very, very good researcher and author, who has been looking at human origins and looking at all the evidence for human origins. I mean, human like us human origins and he's gone back three million years hang on a minute he was weren't around till 300,000 years ago or a bit longer what's he talking about but he produces the evidence and the evidence was produced by excavation in Italy in Spain in America in Britain it was reported it was written up but it was ignored because it didn't fit the paradigm of the time the paradigm of the time was now, humans were created 6,000 years ago, the date of the day of creation. Can't be any older than that. They must have been monkeys. They weren't humans. So you've got a lot, there's a lot of catching up that people have to do. And I hope they will do it because it's a fascinating area. Because if there really was an advanced civilization on this planet, which was wiped out by a catastrophic event, such as a meteor hitting the North American ice sheet 
if that really did happen, and the evidence appears to indicate that it did, but prior to that, there was an advanced civilization. It may not have been like us. They weren't building computers. They weren't doing, they didn't have cars, the same as we do. They had different things. We say they were spiritually more advanced. Because the other question with this granite um, thing is, when you've got huge lumps of granite, how do you move it? How do you take a 400 ton block of granite and move it 500 miles across desert? And there are no trees in Egypt you can make rollers out of. You've got a river, you can float it down, but how do you get it onto a boat to float it down the river? And anyway, there are what's called cataracts on the river, which are basically little waterfalls. It's not a clear run through from Aswan to Giza. So you've got all these questions to answer. When you get the answer, the answer becomes even more exciting and to say exciting because it's exciting if it's something that we haven't explored before. And that is the whole point of education, the whole point of science, that we're looking into areas with our knowledge and trying to make sense of what we see. So how do you move a 400 ton block of granite? Well, you can do it today. You've got cranes that are strong enough to lift 400 tons. But thousands of years ago, they didn't have cranes. Well, there are certainly no pictures of cranes. So how do you lift a 400 ton block of granite and move it 500 miles? Or more importantly, in the Great Pyramid, inside the Great Pyramid, it's what's called the King's Chamber. There's the Queen's Chamber as well. They only call the Queen, King and Queen's Chamber because in Islam, men are buried in pointed tombs, women are buried in flat tombs. And because the Queen's Chamber has a flat roof, it's called the Queen's Chamber. King's Chamber has a pointed roof. No, King's Chamber has pointed roof above the existing chamber. And there's one object inside it called the sarcophagus, which is too big to go through the only entrance into the room. Mm-hmm. It's one inch too big all around. Can't go in. So they built the pyramid around it. But above the King's Chamber are four, are five layers of granite blocks each weigh 50 tons because they've got a span of 20 foot width space. So how do you raise a 50 ton block of granite 200 foot into the air, then move it 200 foot horizontally? Hmm. Even cranes today would be hard pushed to achieve that. 200 foot into the air, 200 foot horizontally, and do it 70 times because there are 70 blocks. So how do they do it? And the King's Chamber, by the way, is lined with granite. Everything else is limestone. The blocks of the Giza Pyramid are made of basically limestone. The King's Chamber is lined with granite. Hmm. Granite has what's called piezoelectric properties. If you apply pressure to it, it transmits, it creates an electric charge. I don't know the answer. But the the evidence would appear to indicate that sound is a particular way of being able to do this. And there there is evidence that sound directed in to a particular point using drums, trumpets, and the human voice in unison 
can create a particular frequency which will allow objects to move. There's also something called white powdered gold. Let's not go there at the moment, but that's an equally interesting story, which has anti-gravitational properties. White powder gold is more or less what it, what it says. It's a white powder, but it originates from gold bullion. Hmm. Take, a, take a block of gold bullion and heat it. It'll melt. Continue heating it and continue heating it at 2,000 degrees for about 15 minutes. It will become a white powder. Now, most people wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't heat gold beyond the point it melts at. But if you do that, now inside the Great Pyramid was discovered a lot of white powder. Mm. And they thought it was just, just rubbish. And it was just removed. Nobody, nobody looked at it. But if it was white powder gold, if it had been used in the raising of the blocks, it would make much more sense. Mm. So you've got all these things, all these things are part of the whole, should we say, new, new sciences that are being identified as we go around the world today. And there are people all over the world putting a lot of time and a lot of effort into it. <coughs> it's gradually becoming more widely known. There are certain specialist publications, I would say Nexus magazine, which I have major part, something to do with. <coughs> You got it. Oh, well done. Well, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here, Stephen. Yes, sir. You got your, you got your copy of Nexus. It's very easy to get Nexus magazine. Nexusmagazine.com. Sign on. You can get it that way. Yes, sir. I'm glad you got that. I'm, I'm honored to, to actually touch it in the physical. So I was listening to a lot of what you said. And it was, okay. mi it was miraculous because you actually answered the majority of my questions. You touched okay. on the years of the Sphinx, which I'm really excited about. I love how you said that the narrative is older than 4,500 years, but they won't let us know that. Anyone that attempts to explain that is ostracized by the communities. Everything you said was amazing. The one that I have to say, well, two things blew my mind. All of them did, but... The ones that stand out so much are the the bird that uses the leaf to soften rock material. Like that is, I've never heard of anything like that. And that's just basically proof that our ancestors were observing animals to learn how to do these things. On top of that, I really love what you said about acoustic levitation, but I have never to this day and I'm talking about watching these kind of things for years, has ever heard or have ever heard of the white gold powder. So that right there is, is mind-blowing. And it is going to push my, my journey forward. So I wanted to thank you for that. I really did. That was incredible, brother. So you are a very well, knowledgeable thank man. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. It's, it's, by the way, it's called white powder gold. White powder gold. White powder gold. Just, just ask Dr. Google. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll tell you quite a bit about it. There was a very interesting man down in, um, I think it was Arizona, I called David Hudson, who did some very interesting research on white powder gold because he found 
the land he was trying to farm was basically infertile. Hmm. It was it was the wrong sort of soil. He couldn't grow anything there. He decided to investigate the soil to find out what was the problem. And long story short, he discovered a part of it was the content of white powder gold. Hmm. It was in the soil. Now. The full story was actually published in Nexus about 20 years ago. So Nexus is well in advance of many of the ideas, but that's where a lot of them come from. Yes, White powder gold is being investigated. A friend of mine called um, Lawrence Gardner, who's not died, but he wrote many books about the, uh, the bloodline of Christ. And one of the things was he was, in, he was interested in the stories of white powder gold in the Old Testament because it is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's called manna. Mm. It's food. And he acquired a sample of white powder gold. There are people who, uh, who create it. It's quite easy to create. And he sent it to one of the top research laboratories in the UK called Harwell Atomic Research Laboratories near Oxford and asked them to analyze it for him. He didn't tell them what it was. He just said, please, would you analyze this sample? And they, they came back and said, it consists of the platinum group metals, which are platinum, obviously, iridium. Uh, there, there are six of them. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. There are six platinum group metals, which is what you get when you analyze it. He then said, that, no, it came from gold bullion. And they said, no, it didn't. It's platinum group metals. He said, yes, it did. And this is where you, you've got the dichotomy between the scientists who will believe what they think is the right answer without being prepared to look at the evidence that there is a different answer. But if white powder gold, I said it was, it was ingested, people ate it. It was one of the means of raising the level of intelligence, raising spiritual frequencies mm. within humans. And it was used specifically for the, and that's why it, it, it appears in Egypt quite regularly. The symbol for it is actually a pyramid, mm. a pyramid, pyramid shape, because that's how it appears as, as a sort of cake, if you like, of a pyramid. Anyway, only important people were allowed to eat, to eat it because it raised the level of their intelligence raised their knowledge and that is the the origination of monarchy because if you recognize a monarch as highly intelligent using the correct means of maintaining his power uh, he isn't fighting he's not going out and killing people he's recognized for being intelligent for being not our supreme being, but somebody who is evidently more capable than the average person to, to ensure the activity of society. Obviously, at the time of Egypt, there's a much smaller society than it would be today. But it's the recognition of it by others. And that is the, the origin of monarchy. Because there have to be monarchs, there have to be people in charge. We hope they have our best interests at heart. At the moment, it's rather doubtful that they do. Because people can acquire 
positions of authority using using power i force or using money to, to maintain that position but if people are recognized for who they are as being highly intelligent honest good people and if white powder gold can achieve that and they can be recognized for it that should be encouraged mm. so many of the stories that appear in in the bible are basically history they're recounting what did happen the language is a bit difficult to grasp on occasions the language of the old testament it's been translated through about four different languages so things do get a little bit um misinterpreted i mean there's a very famous phrase which i think has been seriously misunderstood let alone misinterpreted following the, the uh, resurrection of christ he was crucified and we know the story three days later he rose from the dead that doesn't sound very sensible that doesn't sound very logical what actually happened stories in the bible indicate that yes he was crucified which is not a very nice way to die. He wasn't dead when he was taken from the cross. He was put in a tomb where he was uh, resuscitated, if you like, by the Essene community who lived nearby. And the phrase used in the Bible, which has always struck me as being very strange, he was raised from the dead, rose to heaven, accompanied by the heavenly host. What's that about? What, what's a heavenly host? It's a mistranslation. It was the Essene community who were usually dressed in white, who took him to heaven, their village nearby, where he was resuscitated and eventually went to India. Christ has a tomb in Kashmir, believe it or not, which I visited. Hmm. It's not a particularly impressive tomb. It's sort of metal railings around a, a very nondescript tomb. I don't know if it's his or not. But in Kashmir and Srinagar, the capital of Kashmir, they believe it is Christ. Hmm. So if he's in India and he was crucified in um, near Jerusalem, how did he get from Jerusalem to Kashmir? It's quite a long way. Because he wasn't dead. Hmm. And he was also married. He was married to Mary Magdalene who features quite prominently in the Bible. He also had three children, as is common at the time. His eldest son was named after him. He's called Jesus. His second son was called James. And his daughter was called Tasmin, or Tamsin. Hmm. It's all there. So the indication is that there is a, a, a bloodline descended from Christ. There may well be, I don't know. But that is the story behind the um, uh, story of um, Rennes-le-Chateau in southwest France. Mm. But that's another story, much longer story. Yes, sir. Great yes, stuff. Sir. So looking at the whole story of um, biblical history, because there is one event that took place around 300 BC, 400 BC, which I think is probably one of the most catastrophic events in human history, the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt had this incredible library, 
where any ship that visited Egypt, which was a major trading um, post country at the time, any ship visiting um, Alexandria, which is the port for Giza, about 50 miles from Giza, anybody, any ship visiting, if they had any documents or scrolls on board, they were required to present it to the Library of Alexandria where they would be copied. The Library of Alexandria would retain the originals and the ship would, would be given a copy. So you can imagine the incredible knowledge that was, <coughs> that was being accumulated in Alexandria. And then it was burnt. It was burnt several times, but not completely. So the knowledge that we have, this is where the Piri-Rees map more than likely originated. Piri-Rees map which shows Antarctica without the ice. Mm -hmm. Hang on a minute. Antarctica was only discovered in 1820. Piri-Rees map was 1519, 1513. Mm -hmm. How did they know? They said in the, in the, in the margin of the Piri-Rees map, Piri-Rees was a Turkish admiral. In the margin, he said, I copied this from much earlier maps. Hmm. Who made them? Who made these maps that showed America correctly and Africa correctly? The coastline of North America, South America, and Antarctica and Africa. All correct in relation to each other. Hmm. How did they know? It, hmm. There's so much that we are beginning to ask the question. It's, that's all you have to do is ask the question, how did they know? And that will probably lead you on a lifetime search of examining these strange stories, yes, which sir. are great fun. Yes, sir. On that note, my brother, before this segment kicks us off, I wanted to thank you for the knowledge. I learned a lot. Like you said earlier, any good answer gives you a lot more questions. So I have a lot more to search for. On that note, before this beautiful recording kicks me out, I wanted to thank you for your time, Marcus Allen. Always a pleasure. We'll reach you on Nexus Magazine, online, and on Instagram. And, um, and just thank you for your time and your knowledge. I hope we can continue to build. And it's been a, it's been a lot of fun learning from you, brother. It really has. It's been an honor. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thank you, you guys. Yes, you do very well. Thank you. I do my best, brother. I do my best. On that note, episodes drop every Sunday at 4. We love you. Stay tuned. Stay asking questions. Make sure you buy a thousand copies of Nexus because that's just the right thing to do. And on that note, we both love you. Take care. Be well, guys. Goodbye.